and you slaughtered and you had no pity. And that's the end of Perak Bet. There is no tshuva. There is no making up and, 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 and kissing. There is no censure of Basion for speaking this way. And I think that what Eicha is doing in this parrot is to say there are some times when getting angry at a Tzadosh is good and is allowed. We need to be able to do that. We need to be able to do that in all of our relationships. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. About a month ago, I received an email from Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman. Rabbi Berman was a guest on this podcast in Episode 79, Biblical Criticism, Academic Bible Study, and Orthodox Judaism, and in Episode 107, Did the Exodus from Egypt Happen as the Torah Describes? I've always learned a lot from his perspectives, which combined an academic approach to the Bible with deep religious conviction. In this email, he wrote... What does Eicha have in common with climate change deniers, anti-vaxxers, Holocaust deniers, and those that claim that the 2020 presidential elections were stolen? I was intrigued and invited him back onto this podcast to discuss what he meant. More than anything else, I was looking for a way to relate to Megillat Eicha in a world which seems so distant from that described in the book. And even the world described in Eicha, it's often hard to make sense of exactly what is being said. There are different voices represented, and they often contradict each other and themselves. The book seems to go back and forth between blaming the community for its own destruction and saying that God went too far, and sometimes neither, just lamenting how terrible everything is. Maybe the real question is whether there is a theology of Echa at all, or if it's a book with multiple theologies, some of which border on the heretical. Rabbi Berman developed a novel approach to Echa, and his reading, at least for me, infused it with new life. As you'll hear, Rabbi Berman believes that Eicha was written to be performed like a play, as a dialogue between the prophet Yirmiyahu and Bat Sion, a composite character who represents the different voices that were being expressed by the grief-stricken people after the destruction. Rabbi Berman also sees Eicha as representing a type of therapy session between the author and the people, who need to face realities that they're refusing to acknowledge, even when those realities seem blindingly obvious. And crucially, Rabbi Berman sees Eicha as a corrective to common but shallow theology. As you'll hear, he's concerned that this shallow theology is something that we believe even today. Ultimately, any deep understanding of Judaism and acknowledgement of God's love for Israel isn't complete without the splash of cold water that Eicha provides. It would be nice to advocate a Jewish theology that ignores the difficult parts of our relationship with Hashem, but it wouldn't be honest or true. I hope that this conversation with Rabbi Berman will not only make your Tisha B'Av more meaningful, but will also provide serious food for thought that we can take with us long after Tisha B'Av is over. And we'll get to that conversation in a minute. First, subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum wherever you get your favorite podcasts, whether on Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Amazon Audible, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And remember to rate and review. I'll make this short this week. If you want to have your own podcast and have it expertly produced, go to jchpodcasts.com or write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. My guarantee is that you'll be thrilled with what we do. Finally, let me say that I've been gratified and honored by the positive feedback I've received for this podcast, both publicly and privately, including when people disagree with either me or my guest. 
Anytime someone takes the time to reach out, I appreciate it and I'm very flattered. As you know, it takes a lot of time and effort to produce every episode of The Orthodox Conundrum, from the preparation to the recording to the post-production. And there's so much more that I want to accomplish through this podcast, such as live events and more. I value the community that we've created together, and I invite you to support The Orthodox Conundrum through our Patreon site. Go to patreon.com slash jewishcoffeehouse. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash jewishcoffeehouse, and help us create a positive, God-centered, halachic, intellectually honest, self-aware, accountable, and welcoming Orthodox Judaism. Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman is professor of Tanakh at Bar-Ilan University. A graduate of Princeton University and of Yeshivat Haaretzion, Rabbi Berman is the author of Created Equal, How the Bible Broke with Ancient Political Thought, which was a National Jewish Book Award finalist in scholarship. He also wrote Inconsistency in the Torah, Ancient Literary Convention and the Limits of Source Criticism, and most recently, Anima Amin, Biblical Criticism, Historical Truth, and the Thirteen Principles of Faith. His articles on biblical theology and contemporary society have appeared in the pages of Mosaic Magazine and the Wall Street Journal. Rabbi Dr. Berman served as a member of the International Advisory Board for the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Rabbi Joshua Berman, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Oh, Scott, it's always a pleasure to be with you and with your, your listening audience. I want to tell you that you approached me about discussing Megillat Eicha, Lamentations, and Anytime I speak with you, I always find out so much information which I hadn't known before. I'm always enlightened tremendously. At the same time, frankly, discussing Eicha can be a bit of a downer, which I assume is sort of the point. You know, Eicha is one of those books in Tanakh without a lot of jokes, without a lot of laughs. Maybe some listeners are listening to the first few minutes of this podcast and saying, should I continue? Do I really want to talk and listen to Eicha for an hour? Is there anything in Eicha other than gloom and doom? Is there a message for me today? So as a general opening question, Rabbi Berman, can you tell me why should people listen to this podcast and discuss Eicha? What is in Eicha for us in 2023? Oh, the reason that, that it's important to listen to this podcast, if I may be uh, uh, so immodest, is because Eicha is not what we think it is. That's, that's, that's in a nutshell. Uh, uh, and I, I think that it, uh, it actually, while it certainly does discuss events uh, of a long time ago, uh, it discusses them in ways that are, that, are, that are important, both for our personal spiritual lives, as well as our collective spiritual lives. Thank you for that answer, and hopefully people are with us now, and then we can go into the technicalities and find out why it actually relates to us directly. So let me start, Rabbi Berman, with a technical question. As we know, Eicha has five chapters. I want to know, should we look at Eicha as a single book? or as five separate poems or five separate ma'amarim? I'm not asking specifically about authorship. Even if it's one author, is it a unified work with a single theme, or is it five separate themes that are joined together because they all deal with the Chorban in one way or another? Right. So, wow, Scott, that's actually a, a question that, that uh, in modern academic scholarship comes up. You know, it does come up with the question of authorship, but also even if it is from the same author or the same set of, you know, Nevi'im or B'nai Nevi'im, and modern scholars don't always necessarily assume, as the Masorah does, that it was Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, that wrote Eicha. Regardless of whether you have a, a modern uh, uh, academic bent or not, anybody who reads Eicha and sits with the text can clearly see that, A, that there are distinct units. You know, obviously, we've all probably noticed that uh, uh, several of the prakim, several of the chapters, are what we call an acrostic. That is, the first pasuk, Eicha, is with Aleph, and the second pasuk begins with a Bet, and the third pasuk with a Gimel, etc. Several of the chapters are like that. 
But it's also immediately also obvious that there's no real beginning, middle, or end to what's going on here. And sometimes you hear highly discordant and almost contradictory things. Just to give an example of what I mean, if you have uh, a voice saying, you have, let's just call it Eicha in the meantime, the Megillah. If it says here in Perik Aleph, Hashem Mariti. Hashem is righteous because I have rebelled against his word. That sounds pretty pious. But then you have in Perik Bet, someone saying, or Eicha saying, for lack of a better term at this point, uh, saying to a Kaddish Baruch Hu about about Yerushalayim, about Sion's children, pecha. You killed them on the day of your anger. Tavachta You slaughtered them. You had no pity. Well, wait a minute. Didn't we just already say that Hashem is righteous and that we rebelled against His His word? So it's not only that we have distinct units. We seem to have different ideas coming out in the different chapters. And the truth is, if you were to read Herod Gimel, the longest in terms of the number of, of, of verses, uh, chapter 3, Paragimel, what's called the, uh, the the chapter about the Gever, because it starts off, Aniha Gever, I am the man. Who is this man? We can maybe talk about that. But, you know, if you didn't have this as part of Eicha, which we, you know, assume and know to be something about the Horban, the destruction of Yerushalayim and the Beth HaMikdash, if you were to just read Paragimel by itself, you would be hard-pressed to figure out that it was even something from the Horban. You would think that it's some guy who has a lot of troubles, and he's dealing with his troubles. So what is this doing, and why, why, is, why, why is there no mention really of the Horban and Paragimel? So it does seem to be that Eicha is, at least at first glance, disjointed. This is certainly why many modern approaches to Eicha see it in just that way. But I don't think that's the right way to read Eicha. Okay, so we're going to come back to that and get more specific right, in terms right. of how to yeah, see yeah. it as a unified work. Before we get there, some more technical questions I have about it. In your opinion, who is the audience? In other words, whoever wrote it, who was he talking to? Who did he want to listen to this particular lament? Right. Okay. Oh, well, okay. That already, that is a lot. This is a, a, a truckload of assumptions there, Scott, when you say this lament. Let me talk about that. Okay. So I certainly can't fault you for calling. Eicha a lament for two reasons. In English, we call it lamentations, so it seems to be a lament. And the fact is, is that Chazanal, whenever they refer to Eicha, they never call it as we do Eicha. They call it keynote lamentations. That is to say, Chazal saw the Megillah as basically the same type of writing, the same purpose, maybe even the same type of audience as the rest of the keynote that we have. Uh, it's almost as if Yes, yes, we have the Sefer keynote that we read on Tisha B'Av, but really the first five keynotes are the first five prakim of Eicha. So when we read Eicha in the classic traditional way, as Chazal did, uh, or, as, or following Chazal's lead, uh, uh, that this is a lament, then we, well, there, there are different ways to parse this. You could either say we are listening in to things that people who had just survived the Horbalan, the survivor community, if you will. They're kind of unburdening themselves, letting out their woe, letting out, you know, just their anguish, turning some of it to a Kaddish Baruch Hu in protest, turning some of it to a Kaddish Baruch Hu in tefillah, in prayer. Uh, and so we're kind of eavesdropping on things that people were saying after the Horbalan. Much like we might say that, that on, on, on Tisha B'Av day, when we get to the keynote, that are from uh, the, the Crusades in the Middle Ages, you know, you can definitely tell they are talking about specific events and we are hearing and maybe, you know, 
not empathizing with Bar Hashem in our generation. None of us have experienced this type of, uh, of, uh, of, of travail, but to kind of identify with them and share in, and, you know, keep their, the memory alive of their difficulties. Some people say that maybe Echa was Dafka written. It's not just a kind of a recording, you know, like, like our Zoom recording here of things that were said, you know, a, a month, a year, two years after the Horban, but that someone, let's follow the Mesorah. Yermiyahu wrote something that would be kind of the, the eternal expression of the Jewish people following the Horban, that it was designed to be for you and me to, to say and to recite. So those are different different views that come out in scholarship. And I, yeah, that's, 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 that's kind of, the, those are the traditional ways of looking at Eichah. Is there a non-traditional way that you would suggest we also consider in addition to the traditional ways? I think we can have a Stephen Pani Blatora way of looking at it. Oh, yeah, sure. So I would tell you that first, a lot of scholars, because you have all these different uh, uh, viewpoints, you know, again, I just I just gave one sh- small example there of one passage that seems very pious in its way in which it's, it, it understands the suffering. And another one, which is, you know, I would say the sharpest rebuke of the Kaddish Baruch Hu anywhere in the Tanakh, you know, and then we have the Gever and and there's different, there's different voices. We'll come back to this in a moment. These voices, some people say, what we have here really is kind of a cacophony that after the Horban, nobody really knew what the score was. You know, there were no Nisim Beniflaot and no, no miracles. And so just as I would say in our own time, following the Shoah, Jews, I'm not even talking about Jews that, that left religion, even Jews that stayed within a religious framework. If you ask 10 Jews who survived the Shoah, you know, what do they make of all this religiously and where are they at now? You would probably get 10 different opinions. And so it was perhaps after the Horban. And so what we have here, right, there's no beginning, middle or end. What we have is just all the voices thrown together. And this is the way in which many modern scholars approach Eicha. Don't look for a middle beginning or end. Don't look for which voice is the dominant one, which one is right, which one is wrong. It's all just, they're all throwing it all in, and it's all, it's all just being, being voiced out there. That's the approach to the, to the messiness of, of Eicha. No order, no dominant voice, no coherent, single theological message. That's the way in which most people today, modern scholars, read Eicha. I mean, that's really fascinating, only because it seems so at odds with the external structure of the book. I don't know if there is any Sefer and Tanakh, which is as obviously structured poetically as Eicha, 22 verses and four of the Prakim. The middle one is three times that, 66. Four of the Prakim are alphabetized. The one that's not is still 22 letters. So God, the inside- it's even, it's even more than what you're saying, okay? Let me, let me show you something that, that might be a, a little bit new for some of our listeners. So as you say, it's what, what we call an acrostic. Everything is, is according to the Aleph Bet, three out of the four chapters. But also the first two chapters are perfect chiastic structures. What do I mean by that? By that I mean, if you read the text really carefully, you will see that in the first Pasuk of, of Paragalif and the last Pasuk of Paragalif, they share a common word. So, so here, for example, Ha'ir uh, Rabati Am, in Pasukalif, the the city with multitudes of people, and you have that same word uh, uh, in the last pasuk when she says, "He rabot on fotai, many are my travails for the bitavai and my heart." So you have the same two words in Pasukalif. You will discover you will discover the same thing about pasuk bet and pasukafalif. That is the second verse at the beginning and the second from the end. They share a common word, as do the third verse and the third verse from the end. 
This is what I mean by a chiastic structure. Perak, Aleph, and Bet have that. And so this is an incredibly structured. I don't think this is anywhere else in Tanakh where you have Prakim, this is true only about Perak, Aleph, and Bet, that are both acrostic, they follow the Aleph, Bet, and also have this, this uh, 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 11-sided chiastic structure where you have the same word in the opening, last bus of section, second to last, second to verse. So all that, I agree with you, all that says clearly the message here is that there is supreme order in what's going on. And that's why I have a difficult time with my colleagues who say, no, it's all just messiness. It's all just cacophony. There's no order. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I never knew that, obviously, before. That uh -huh. is really, really interesting. Then in that case, let's get into the real meat and potatoes of what we're talking about today. Let's talk about the theology of Megillat Echa, which you said that some scholars, many scholars suggest, there isn't a theology. This is simply scattered voices, lots of different positions, as you said about people who were survivors of the Shoah. Yeah. You ask mm -hmm. 10 people what it means theologically, you're likely to get 10 different answers. The same thing is probably true at the time of the Korban, either one of them. And you're saying that's not what's going on in Eicha, despite the fact that it looks like that. So, Rabbi Berman, to put a big question on the table, what is the theology that is being expressed in Eicha? Okay, okay. So we have to build to this slowly. I want to make a few observations about Eicha. Not about its theology, building towards that, but about some, some of the uh, poetic aspects of what we have here. In keynotes proper, like the rest of the keynote that we have on Tisha you will generally find that they, most of them are spoken in the first person. Either one person is speaking about what Hashem did to me, referring to Kuala Yisrael as a collective uh, aggregate whole, uh, sometimes in first person plural, oh, you know, we did this and Hashem did that and now we're stuck doing this and now we hope one day there'll be this. But it's all in first person. We have some keynotes which are in second person, speaking to Yerushalayim or to Am Yisrael. In Eicha, and this is critical, this is critical for, it's something that must be accounted for, is that in Eicha we have multiple voices. Not just, not just that we hear different theologies. You can tell that there are different speakers. There are two primary speakers in Eicha. And, you know, maybe it doesn't look like uh, a script of, of, of Shakespeare, you know, where you have the parts written out, but it's not difficult to figure out what these two voices or two parts or two characters are. You have Sukim, where Yerushalayim is spoken about in the third person. For example, the opening pasuk of the Megillah, Eicha Yashva Vadad, oh, woe, or look how she sits alone. That is someone speaking about Yerushalayim, speaking of Yerushalayim in the third person. But then we also have many tzukim that are not in the third person, but they are in uh, uh, the first person. Uh, Look Hashem and take notice, for I have become I have become uh, uh, cheapened. Okay, or or on these I will cry. My eyes drip with tears. This is someone speaking of Yerushalayim in the first person. What we have here, this is the way all modern scholars understand, I think this is correct, that what we have is when you see Tzuking speaking of Yerushalayim in the first person, this is the figure that's referred to by the Megillah itself as Batsion. Who is Batsion? Literally, daughter Zion or daughter of Zion. It's not quite clear how to translate that into English. But this is a kind of a collective personality. 
um, in the same way that we might speak of America as she or something like that. So Yerushalayim is she, and she's a mother of the of, it, of her children who have been slaughtered. She is also a, a, a kind of a, a, a widow or abandoned woman from her from her partner. So Batzion is one of the characters. The other character, the one who speaks of Yerushalayim, about Yerushalayim, as in that first passage that I read, how does she sit uh, abandoned? Uh, uh, and this is most of the psukim in, in the uh, in the Megillah. Well, I guess most of us would say that's a, a narrator, a narrator, and which is correct, but it's not good enough. We need to go further than that. Normally, when we speak of a narrator in the Tanakh, um, like just take the first pasuk of Chumash. Who is saying that verse? Not who wrote it. Not who did it come from. Who is saying it? It's not a Kodesh Baruch Hu, because then it would say, barati in the beginning, I created heaven and earth. It's Kiviyachol, as it were, a kind of a heavenly scribe who just happens to be sitting next to the Shalom and kind of describing events. The impartial narrator describing what's happening on some level. Yes, yes, and this is the kind of the narratorial voice that we hear throughout Tanakh, but that's not the voice here in Eicha, because the narrator in Eicha is one of the people, clearly, because he gets upset at certain points uh, and is very emotional. The narrator, I, I, I believe, is just what Chazal say, that it is Yirmiyahu, okay? And what we can find is that is that at many points in the Megillah, this narrator, this Yirmiyahu figure, actually turns to Batsion and talks to her. So, for example, you have in Perakbet, when he says, uh, Ma to what will I compare you, daughter Jerusalem? Ma to what can I possibly compare you and bring you comfort? Gadol kayam palach. Great as the ocean is your travails, who could possibly heal you? And there are many psukim like that. So that what we have in Eicha is a dialogue between two figures. The collective personality of Yerushalayim, Batzion, and Yermiel. That's the start. I want to come back to what you're saying. I want to ask a yep. couple questions about that particular point. The first question yep. I have is, is it always so clear, however, who is speaking? And the reason I'm asking that, as you mentioned before, my eyes filled with tears. Given that it's not an impartial narrator, but rather your Miyahu or some person who's part of the travails, are we so sure that it's Batsion or can that also be the narrator? In other words, if it is a dialogue, is it necessarily clear who's taking each part? Let me put it this way. When you when you kind of read the, the Megillah, with the uh, uh, key guide that I just made, try to think of descriptions in third person as uh, the narrator, Yirmiyahu, okay? And try to think of phrases said in the first person as Batsion, you begin to see certain trends along the way. In other words, at any given puzzle, Elachinami, as they would say in Yeshiva, Scott, it's certainly granted, any, any, single, any single verse you could say, why can't this be the narrator? But it's when you see the, the whole flow of things and how words relate to one another and how sukim follow and build on one another, this is what comes out. Okay. okay. My other question is about the term Batzion itself, which you already said is a little bit ambiguous. Is it daughter Zion or is it daughter of Zion? In preparation for our conversation today, I looked it up in the concordance and I found that it appears in Tanakh, by my count, 25 times, eight of which are in Echa. No other safer has it more than five. Right. That's right. And that's Yeshayahu, that's right. where it appears 
three times in the first part, two yeah. times in the second, whatever. It's In other words, Eicha is the dominant place where it appears, and Eicha is a very, very small part of Tanakh altogether. Obviously, this is a strange confluence that they all appear, or so many appear in a single place. What do you think the significance of that term is, specifically that it's used in Eicha so much when it's not used in other places nearly with that frequency? Uh, so I, I, well, let me, I need to explain a little further what my theory is about what's happening in Eicha, and then I think that'll, that'll become clear. So we've said so far that we have two speakers, okay? Now, we have other works in Tanakh where we have two, two speakers. For example, Eov. In Eov, you have a running set of dialogues between two sides, Eov on the one hand, and his so-called friends uh, or adversaries <laughs> uh, uh, on the other. And uh, as you read through, through Eov, it's very clear Eov's positions are consistent throughout, and the, 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 the friends' positions, theologically, are consistent throughout. And you can see why the author of Eels, you know, created two characters, because they're really they're going at it. But here in Eicha, we have a difficulty, because, because uh, it seems difficult, to kind of, as I said, we, we have just within Batsion, one in one chapter, she sounds very pious, and in another chapter, she says things that we would probably say are apostasy when she, when she accuses of murder and of, and, of, and of slaughtering her children. So this is what has baffled scholars for a long time. So what I think is going on here, let me explain what I think is the theology and then what Eicha is doing with these two characters. To understand the theology, we have to close Eicha for a second. Okay, I want us to think about a certain phenomenon that we see all over the place in our own time. I want us to think about the following things and what they have in common. Holocaust denial, climate change denial, though I don't know on a day like today, I don't know how anybody could possibly, it's really hot. It's probably really hot all over the world today, but you know, we all know very well. There are Certainly a big chemist, you and I know it's very hot today. Yeah, yeah. You know, there are people saying it ain't happening and certainly it has nothing to do with emissions or anything like that. Um, uh, think of the phenomenon of, the widespread phenomenon of the claim of uh, election fraud in the 2020 elections in the US. Think of those who say, uh, uh, vaccinations against against COVID, Corona, uh, don't work or are dangerous. What all those have in common is that there is tons of empirical proof that those positions are not correct. Certainly, the Holocaust. That's not just because we're Jews. You know, any sane person knows that the stuff happened. Uh, there's no proof that the elections were were stolen four years ago in the United States. Uh, all the science seems to suggest that uh, uh, the world is heating up and it does have to do with uh, our way of life. It seems that no matter what proofs you bring on any of these issues, nothing will change the opinions of those who hold those opinions. Uh, just recently, I heard an interview with a group of archaeologists who were working at, uh, at, uh, at the uh, at Sobibor, uh, the extermination camp in eastern Poland. And, and one of them said, we are doing this work. You know, they're discovering, you know, wonderful things. I mean, amazing nothing. Actual, you know, names of people with tags and rings with people's names on them. I mean, it's a tremendous, tremendous kiddush Hashem what they're doing. And they say, we're doing this so that nobody can say that it didn't happen. Well, the work is important, but I'm afraid that their work is not going to keep anybody from coming to that conclusion. Uh, this just is hard bait. And, and this is a phenomenon that uh, uh, social psychologists call belief persistence. It's when you have a large swath of people who will adopt a view of reality that is utterly impervious to empirical proof to the contrary. 
And the question is, well, why is this? Why, why do people do this? And, and it, it's almost always because there's something about their collective identity, which is tied up with this delusion that they have worked themselves into to the point that if they were to see the truth for what it is, it would totally shatter their own sense of self. And so they are totally blind and they continue to maintain that reality is the way that they say against all proof to the contrary. Just to know about that, that, that concept is important. We see it, you know, all around. That's us. worth the price of admission around. today. Yes, yes. So if you say, you know, well, why should we read Eka? So I don't know about Eka, but, you know, maybe, maybe just this little little portion of the talk already is enlightening about things that we see alarmingly all around us all the time. But now, what does this have to do with Eka? Well, we have to go back to your meow. And we all know that Yirmiyahu had a great struggle with the people. That the people believed, famously, as it says in Yirmiyahu paradigm, that all the buildings in Jerusalem, all the people in Jerusalem, they are Hashem's temple. And so, of course, Hashem would never destroy them. Or to use a term that, that I always like to use, the people in Yirmiyahu's time were hung up on Zion theology. That means... Hashem loves us, and Hashem loves Yerushalayim, and he loves his base of Mikdash, and he loves Malchut Beit David, the Davidic king. That's, and so therefore, they didn't want to listen to Yermiyahu. Now, here's the shocking thing. This is the most, to my mind, maybe the most shocking thing that we come across in Tanakh. The Horban happens. Everything that Yermiyahu said came true. You would expect that the people would come to Yermiyahu and say, Ah, oh, Yermiyahu. You were right. We were wrong. I avino chatano pashano. They would say a big vinoy and then beat their breasts. Nothing of the sort happens. It's not only that we never find that. They come to him and they scorn him. They scorn him. They say, no, what should we do now? He says, you know, just friends, just hold tight. I'm going to talk to a Kurdish Baruch and I'll get back to you. And he comes back and he says, I've, I've heard from a Kurdish Baruch and he says, all that you need to do now is stay put in Yerushalayim and everything will work out. And they say, thank you very much. We're going to Egypt. They spit in his face. How could they do this? How could there be no recognition that Yermiyahu was right? Worse than that, when Gedalia is appointed by the Bavlin to be the governor of Yerushalayim, he's immediately knocked off by loyalists, the king, who clearly felt the only person who can be in charge here is from David. And so my claim is that Yerushalayim, even after the Horban, doesn't get it. They are stuck in the delusion of belief persistence that a Kaddish Baruch who loves me and he loves the Mikdash and he loves Malchut Beit I, there was a Korban. Hello, Korban, what do you do with that? So their answer to that is Hashem must have been out to lunch or was weak that day, but he, he is still with us. And the proof of this, Scott, is the first time that we hear Batsion, the first time that is that in Echav, we hear of a voice speaking in first person. Let me read it. It's a short phrase, and it's a deceptively simple, and I would say pietistic phrase. But we need to we need to examine it in light of the things that I've said. The first thing that we hear from Batsim is when she says, after a long opening delivered by the narrator, she says, Hashem, it's on ye. Oh Hashem. See my, my deprivation. Because the enemy has overcome us. Now, we could all, we could, all of us could say a pasuk like that. Anytime that you know, there's troubles with, our, with our, our enemies, our neighbors, 
We could uh, we could utter a pasuk like that very easily in our tefillah. But think of the blind spots that are in this statement when she says, God, allow, notice my deprivation. She seems to assume that Hashem is out to lunch, that a Kodesh Baruch is not aware of what has gone on. When, of course, the reality is he has brought all of this to bear. When she says, look at my deprivation, don't you notice how strong the enemy was today? That is her perception of what the Chorba was. Why was there a Chorba? Because the Babylonians today were stronger than we were. That's why there was a Chorban. That is, she is lost in space. She is in La La Land. She has no conception of what this is all about. And why? Because it's too difficult. Because to, to really accept, wow, Hashem doesn't love me. Hashem doesn't love us. Hashem actually did all of this? That shatters. That will be shattering to her emona. Worse than that, it would dump all the responsibility on her. Nobody, nobody wants that. So when Batsion is saying, Hashem, look at me, notice, the key word here is almost notice what you obviously just weren't paying attention to because right. you must have you must have skipped right. taking a vacation that day. It's that right. attitude. Yes, that is the opening gambit of, of Batsion. That is where she begins in the Megillah. And so what is Eicha? Eicha is dialogues between two people. Batsion who is in Lana land about the reality. She has belief persistence. She thinks the Kaddish Baruch Hu loves her and loves the, make, loves the Mikdash and just had a bad day or was away for a little while. And then we have Yirmiyahu, whose job it is, is to perform, I would say, almost like a therapist, like a counselor, to take Batsion and remove her from her delusion to get her to wake up and smell the coffee. You know, often... Many of us live in kind of delusions that we create about the world around us, about our relationships, etc. And we don't really see what's going on for real. Because to see things for real would be very painful. And sometimes someone has to grab us by the shoulders and say, listen, you are fooling yourself about what's going on. We have some difficult things to tell you about the reality and the way you're perceiving it. But that is necessary if the person is actually to move on. And so to sum it up, what Eicha is about is a series of dialogues between Yirmiyahu as a pastoral mentor, working with his client, Batsion, to get her to see the truth, but then that's shattering for her. Shattering. And then he has to help her pick up the pieces. That's what Aid is about, in my humble opinion. That's unbelievable. That's fascinating. I have a couple of questions about that specifically. The first one is more of a technical question, and maybe this is not really going in the right direction. But doesn't the fact that Yirmiyahu said, all you have to do is stay in Yerushalayim and the people go to Mitzrayim instead, they go to Egypt, if they really were still advocating Zion theology, wouldn't they say, of course, we'll stay in Jerusalem because God's going to come back and fix everything? Ah, doesn't that sort of undermine that theory? Um, well, perhaps. Uh, um, uh, times are really difficult in Egypt, you know? Listen, a lot of people made Aliyah in the early days of the state and moved away, you know? Uh, sometimes, you know, just reality becomes too difficult. That's a good question. All right, I understand. I also understand that these things are not clear. There's no right or wrong answer, obviously. Right, My other right. question is perhaps a more important question long-term about the fact that Yirmiyahu is telling them Zion theology is incorrect. As you put it, Hashem does not love you. He does not love Jerusalem. He does not love the temple. And he does not love Beit David. Yeah. Now, you know, through my years of Jewish schooling and yeshiva learning— I've always learned that those things are true. God does love the Jewish people. Right. God does love the temple and Beit David and Yerushalayim. Right. So if Yirmiyahu is saying that's not true, 
how do we theologically, I'm speaking to you now as a rabbi, not as a professor, how do we theologically have that jive with the way we understand it? Is Eicha a heretical book effectively? Right, right. So so you're absolutely right, Scott. This is not the way that we are conventionally taught. And with good reason, uh, good reason for our sources. So for example, already I think in the second half of Sefer Yishayahu, uh, which are the, the, you know, what we will be reading, it's Hashem after Tisha B'Av, what we call the, the, you know, the, the, the Shiva de Nechemta, the, 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 the prophecies of, of redemption and of comfort. The second half, or the last 20, 25 prakim of Yishayahu are about this period after the Korban and promising a redemption and saying, listen, Hashem really does love you and he's really going to be there for you and it's all going to get better. So you have that already in Tanakh. And then this is taken much farther when we come to Midrash Eichel Rabbah. When you read any Midrash, almost any Midrash in Eichel Rabbah, you know, you read the Pasuk in the Megillah and then you go see what the Midrash says. The Midrash has a Kaddish bar who crying about the Chorban and he loves Am Yisrael and it's so terrible that this had to happen. But this is Chazal much later because I, this is what I think is happening. I think, as I said, that Eicha is coming to tell Batsion, Hashem is angry and he does not love you right now. Just like sometimes we have to tell our children, Abba is angry. No, I'm not going to give you a hug right now. No, I don't want to talk to you right now. Now you need to be punished. In the immediate aftermath of the Chorban, that is still an important message. Batsion must make, must make the first move. She has to understand this, that the Brit is not just the one side of Hashem as, forgive me for saying this, Santa Claus, you know, of constantly smiling and giving gifts and, you know, love and, and, and all that. There's another side to the Brit. There's another side to covenant. It's a responsibility. And there are consequences for actions. And so in, in Echa, this really comes to the fore. There's, as, as famously, there's virtually nothing you can point to in Echa which one would say, ah, uh-uh, here is the Nechama in Eicha. Very, very little. And even where there is, at the end of Parak Dalid, we have a chance. I can talk about that a little bit later. But, but you know, the fact that you can point to, at most, one verse in all of Eicha, having anything to do with, with, with what we call Nechama, Hashem's love for Israel, uh, says it all. Okay, the other, I don't know, several hundred psukim uh, are all in the other direction. That's what needed to be the, the tone and tenor of the relationship in the immediate aftermath of the Chorban. Long term, maybe Hashem has a change of mind. And certainly, once Amisro are, you know, in Bayit Shani, in the long, the long gullet after Chorban Bayit Shani, I think that Chazal couldn't deal with the idea of the Kaddish Baruch being permanently angry at us. And so in Eicha Rabba, it all gets flipped on its head. It's, it's you know, it's, 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 it's like the parent that has to punish their child, but tries doing it because they love them for it. But that's, that's a later move by Chazal. That's a later move by Chazal. You mentioned earlier, Ani HaGever in the third parak. I am the man. So let's get back to that. Who is the Gever? Who is this person who is speaking and why does he speak like that? Right. Okay. So the truth is that I think in order to understand Parak Gimel, Scott, we need to really understand Parak Bet because Parak Gimel okay. follows Parak Bet. Okay. So we're going to do Parak Bet and then I'll tell you my approach to Parak Gimel. Okay. Parak Bet, and I'd like to take Parak Bet as just kind of a showcase example okay, of, what, of what's happening in the, in the entire Megillah, okay? Herod Bet opens with uh, 10 psukim in which the, what I'm calling the pastoral mentor, Yirmiyahu, he lays out 27 different ways in which a Kodesh Baruch Hu obliterated 
Yehuda, Israel, the Mikdash, and the people. And and the way that he phrases it is with all of the, I would call the Lishonot Chiban, the, the, the terms of endearment with which Batsion had considered herself. So that, for example, in the first Pasuk, what did Hashem do? He shlich mishamayin Eretz, tif Eretz Yisrael, you know, the, the great glory of Israel, boom, smashed it on the ground. In Pasuk Gimel, Gadav Horiat, he cut down Kol Keren Yisrael, the great glory of Israel. And all the phrases are like that. Hashem went boom to something that we thought was beautiful and a sign of our closeness and our covenant with him. The reason that he needs to do this, describe at great length and in great detail what Hashem did, is because she was not believing that. Look, Batsion, wake up and smell the coffee. Hashem did all of this. Your way of thinking about a Kaddish Baruch Hu is not correct. Now, what does that do to a person? Well, here, let me, let me, let me share a little, a little anecdote here that I once witnessed. I was once at an academic conference, you know, in my field, Bible scholars. And I was at a dinner, and uh, one scholar says to his colleague, you know, I want to tell you something. I, I don't believe in God. And the other guy responds, yeah, me either. The first one says, I'll tell you something else. If I did believe in God, I would be very angry with him. And the other guy says, yeah, me too. And what this points to is something that uh, psychologists of religion once discovered when they were surveying attitude, religious attitudes of patients in a ward in the hospital for chronic pain. Lo alenu. Imagine, there's wards where people are in pain all the time. What are their religious attitudes? And they discovered that the patients in that ward, they were the angriest with God, were the ones who were also most likely to say they did not believe in God. Now you say to me, but Rabbi Berman, that's not logical. And to which I say, well, where pain begins, logic ends. Uh, and, and so what we see is that when people are in pain, that sometimes they're really left teetering between two poles, being very angry at God or dissing God altogether. This is what Yirmiyahu understands. He knows that now that he has explained to Batsion in Perikbet, in the first half of it, that Hashem did this, boom, 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 boom. He's not Santa Claus. He's not smiling at you. It's all from him. He was not out so much. It's all from him. Now he knows that she's either going to be angry at him or she is going to abandon him. And this is why, shockingly, even though Echa Perikbet is the most critical chapter of Israel or that describes Hashem's punishment more vividly than any other chapter in Tanakh, Yirmiyahu says not a word of condemnation and blame about Batsion because she can't handle it. Because when we are in pain, we are in no mood to hear Tochacha, to hear that it's our fault. He knows that were he to do that, say, and it's your fault, that's it, she's gone, she's gone, she will leave. And so what he does is after he describes all of this was from the Kaddish Baruch he sits down on the ground next to her and cries with her. Right? He wants to gain her trust. I'm crying with you. And then at the end, he says to her the famous words, which I think, you know, all of us who have sat in a Kumsitz or a hundred or a thousand think, oh, she should daven. It's not clear that that's really what it means. We spoke 
uh, uh, lays, think of Hana in the beginning of Sefer Shmuel, really means to, to let out your bitterness. And that's what she does. And Eicha Perik Bet ends with her saying, okay, if I have to talk to a Kodesh Baruch well, he's going to hear it from me. And that's where she says things like, you killed my children on the day of your, of your anger. And you slaughtered and you had no pity. And that's the end of Perik Bet. There is no tshuva. There is no making up and, 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 and kissing. There is no censure of Batsion for speaking this way. And I think that what Eicha is doing in this parrot is to say there are some times when getting angry at a Tzadosh Baruch Hu is good and is allowed. We need to be able to do that. We need to be able to do that in all of our relationships. You know, sometimes at home, whether it's with a spouse or with a child, things are not going well. Worse than, than shouting and yelling and fighting is where we just turn off, goodbye, I'm out of here. I, I'm out of here. That is bad. So Yirmiyahu knows he's not going to get Patsyon to turn around yet, but he does want to keep her engaged. And so by encouraging her, what I what I, I take all of these chapters to be literally staged. I believe that, that Echa was performed with two figures in front of the survivors of the Horban. Literally. As a model for them. As a model for them as to how they're now supposed to think about what happened. Yumiyahu wants to encourage them to be angry with the Kodesh Baruch because when we're able to express our anger to the other side, then it's empowering, it gives us agency, it, it allows us to, to process our feelings, uh, and all these become a, a positive coping strategy. And that's what's happening in that parrot. It's almost like when somebody is sitting Shiva, if someone says, well, obviously God is just, you know, obviously he must have done something wrong. We know that is a very, very unhalachic attitude and yes, way of relating sure to is. a mourner. That's right. Yes, correct. correct. So how does that relate to Aniha Gever then? Ah, yes. Okay. So now, so wait a minute. So we said the end of Eicha Peret Bet leads us at a point where Batsion has accepted no responsibility. But what she has realized is that the Horban was in fact from Santa Claus or who she had apprehended. C.S. Lewis's grandfather in the sky. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, and so the question is, well, how do you move on from there? And so that's Perakimel. What happens in Perakimel is that Yermiao then sits down next to Batsion and he says, wow, I see you're angry. You know what? I was also angry at the Kodesh Baruch. Let me tell you about how Kodesh Baruch mistreated me, the suffering that he caused me, and how angry I was, and what I did with and that is Perakimel. Because in Perakimel, the Gever describes the things that he endured, many of which sound biographically to sit your meow, you know, being thrown into a pit and being abused and, and, and scorned by, by the member of his, members of his own people. And he's, you know, he describes there how, you know, I said to myself, I've had it with this God. No more. I'm out of here. And then how he turned it around. And he tries to use that as a model as if to say, listen, I've also had my difficulties with, with the Kaddish Baruch so let me tell you how I dealt with it, and maybe it can be a model for you. That is Perigimel. So let me just summarize to make sure I'm understanding this properly. One of the questions we opened up with is that unlike Eov, where every one of his friends is speaking in a different voice with a different consistent argument about the nature of God, here we have multiple characters who are speaking, even the same character is speaking in different voices at different times. Yes, this yes, is all yes. part of the process of dealing with conflicting emotions, a very human reality. Well, it reality. could be the conflicting emotions. It could also be, one of this, this uh, scholar that, that made a very interesting observation about Sefer Yermiao, 
Sefer Yirmiyahu, obviously we hear the words of the Navi, right, representing the Torah but at many, many junctures, literally 143, you see 143 times in Sefer Yirmiyahu that other people are quoted. The Kohanim say the following. The people say the following. Or you sometimes have, have the actual king saying, talking to Yirmiyahu. You hear lots of other people in Yirmiyahu giving their opinion, kind of like today, of what's going on. No, I don't agree with that, with that assessment of what's going on. No, here's, here's the political reality going on. What I claim is that in Eichab, the reason that we have to have five chapters is because Batsion is not monolithic. There are different sub-communities within what we call Batsion. There are those that maybe thought that there could be punishment, but this is way too much. There are those that, no, they really thought that a Baruch was just the great-grandfather in the sky, as you said, the name of C.S. Lewis. And so there are different religious typologies, and each parak addresses a different one. Okay, let's get into Perak Dalit now. You mentioned that it's the only place in the entire Megillah that we see Nechama in its final pasuk. So what is that doing there? Yeah, right, right. Because we would say, okay, if already there's going to be some Nechama, at least put it at the end, right? That's, that's normally what we right. expect. Okay, so what I think is happening here is this. What happens there in Perak Dalit is that you have Batsion, again, the voice that speaks in first person, finally realizing her error of perception. You can see that, for example, when she says, let's just look at one Pasuk, in Perik Dalid, Pasuk Chaf, okay? A Pasuk that we know from our Zemirot on Shabbat. She says here, Ruach HaPenu, Mashiach Hashem, the breath of our lives, the anointed one of God, meaning the Davidic king, Niltad B'Shchitotam, he has now been ensnared in their traps because Tzidkiyahu was trapped by the, by the Babylonians. Asher Amarnu, of whom, Tzidkiyahu, of whom we had said, that Silo in his shadow or shade, protective shade, we will dwell amongst the nations. What's really happening, what we need to understand there, is that that Pasuk, they say two things about the Davidic king which are incorrect and which are boyish ways of viewing kings in ancient times. When they say, Ruach Apenu, the breath of our nostrils, was our king. All ancient kings are the breath of the nostrils of their people, especially in Egypt. And so they are using this worship of the king, a, a phrase that the Goyim used to worship their kings. This is how they viewed their king. When they say, we thought about him, Betsilo, in his shade or shadow, his protective shade or cover, we will dwell amongst the Goyim. That is also an ancient Near Eastern phrase that's used about, oh, that king, oh, he is our protective shade or shadow, Betsilo. You'll never find that the Tanakh refers to the kings in these terms. But because the people would say, oh, Malchupetavin, Vanachmilkorim, they would all bow down to him. They thought he was the living end. He was the guarantee of their protection. And so when they say this verse in Parak Dalit Pasotat, they are, they are mocking themselves. Oh, yeah, that guy is what we said. Ruach Apeno. Oh, he is the breath of our nostrils. That's what we said about him. Oh, we said about him. We thought that he would give us shade and protection. They're now able to say that mocking themselves. And so Yermiyahu responds by saying, very good, Batsio. You've woken up and you've realized that you were wrong that your perception of reality of what kingship is about was wrong. Now that you have that, you have been able to enunciate what your error was. Now I am able to say to you 
the very next pasuk, he says, Tam avonech basiyon. Your iniquity has ended. You know, it's a strange phrase, Tam avonech. Really? Can anybody ever say, can I ever, can anyone ever say to me, wow, Berman, you know what? Your sins are over. Really? That would be very nice. Sounds I good. I like to hear that. How could Yirmiyahu say to her, Tam avonech? They can say that because her error was thinking that the Davidic king was, you know, the living end and that God would always be with him. Now that she has recognized that she viewed kingship the wrong way, indeed now, Yirmiyahu can say, very good, Batsion, Tam avonech. Your iniquity has ended. That's so interesting. It also puts new light on some of the liturgical phrases that we use. As you mentioned, Ruach HaPenu Mashiach Hashem on Shabbos. But frankly, throughout the keynote, Eicha is constantly quoted. And it sounds like a lot of the things that are being quoted approvingly as this is true in your reading are actually things that Yermiyahu is saying, no, 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 that's not true. That is your wrong that's opinion right. about yourself. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There are several verses there at the end of Herak Dalid that, that are clearly in this vein. Clearly. Fascinating. In that case... I have to ask about the final parak because it changes the structure. It's still 22 psukim. It's the only non-alphabetical parak. And we've already said the nechama. We've already said the consolation at the end of parak. Well, what is the purpose of parak then? Good. Okay. So parak is different than the other partim. Uh, to my mind, it's the primary difference is that there's only one speaker. Right? In other words, Zachor Hashem mehayalan is the opening phrase. Remember Hashem what has befallen us, or take note, Hashem, what has fallen, what has befallen us. It could be Yirmiyahu speaking. It could be a, a, a script for Batsion, what she should be saying. But it, it is that one voice that we hear it consistently throughout that parrot. There is no more dialogue. Parrot came really not a dialogue, as are the first four prakim. It is a tefillah. It is simply a tefillah. Here's the fascinating thing about parrot hey. So Perate is clearly a tefillah of someone living in Yerushalayim after the Chorban. The Bavlim are in charge. The Bavlim are having a field day, ransacking the place and making life miserable for the Jews that are there. And it's an appeal to a Kaddish Baruch Hu to restore better times. Okay? In that, it is similar to two other similar tefillot that we have in the Tanakh. In Sefer Tehillim. In Sefer Tehillim, we have two places where also we have someone who is standing in Yerushalayim following the Chorban, asking Kaddish Baruch Hu to bring relief. Those are Mizmorim Ayin Dalit and Ayin Tet. Now, we don't, we're not going to have time to go through all those chapters here, but I want to I demonstrate that there is a chasm of, of difference between the, the theology of those Mizmorim how does one turn to a Kaddish Baruch Hu living in Yerushalayim after the Choban and how Eicha Perakeh does that? Here are the differences. In Tehillim, those two Mizmorim are flush with what I would call L'Shonot Chiba about Israel. We are Chasidecha. We are Abadecha. We are your, your, your righteous ones. We are your servants. We are Torecha. We are your eternal love. You love us. We are Adatcha. We are your congregation. We have a breach with you and many more. Echa Perakei never uses any of those terms. Let me show you some other differences, and then we'll tie it all together. In those Mizmorim, in Tehillim, the Mishorer, the authors of, of the poets of those Mizmorim, are quick to point to the Chilol Hashem that the Goyim have done. Look what they've done to your Mikdash. Look what they've done to your name. Echa Perakei never does that. Never does that. Those Tehillim point to, look how cruel they have been to us. Echa Perakei never does that. They say, 
That's one of the psukim that's there, what we say in, you know, on Seder night. They ask in many different ways for Nikala. We want revenge against the Goyim. Echa Peretain never does that. Now, when we look at those two Mizmorim, they are flush with psukim that actually Chazal have incorporated into our Slichot. They are the default way of us turning to a Kodesh the Eight Saran in a time of trouble. And in Eicha Perakei, you find none of this. What's going on? Because what we have here, Eicha Perakei, Yirmiyahu is saying, those Mizmorim, they are the problem. When we say to Kodesh Baruch oh, Ephidias, you love us. We are your servants. We are your Hasidim. We are your turtle doves. And, and they're being cruel to us. And, and they're being Chalashim Shemayim. All those things might be true, but they take the focus away from what needs to be the main point which is, we have sinned. We have sinned. That's what Eifah Perakei talks about. Yermiel does not want to instruct Batsion in turning to a Kodesh Baruch and saying, but you love us, and you love your Mikdash. That was the problem to begin with. And so I call Perakei urging prayer of Zion theology, because that was exactly the problem. And so what we have is, we have really a machloket, I would say, really a real deep theological debate between how to turn to Kodesh Baruch after the Korban. In Tehillim, they actually sound much like the opponents of Yirmiyahu and Sefer Yirmiyahu. Yeah, God loves us. God loves his Mikdash. So we should tell them they're, they're being Mechal Mikdash. God loves us. We should tell them how, how cool they're being to us. And Eicha Peretei is not, not more of that. That's, that was the root of the problem. What we need to get back is the other side of the coin of what it means to be in a covenant. That if we don't fill our, fill, fill our side, then we, then we get punished. And so therefore, what we need to do to restore the relationship is talk about Katanu. And so he does that twice. And then later on, in Tehillim, they talk about, oh, don't pay attention to Avonot. That's what they say there. Don't pay attention to Avonot. Well, that's not going to do it for your meow. We need to pay attention to Avonot. That's the cause of all this. And also, Harsh. in addition to that, if I can extrapolate from what you're saying, pay attention to our Avonot and accept that your Zion theology is wrong. And again, just taking yes. from what you're saying, the final pasuk, not the final one we read, the actual final pasuk of Eicha, ki imos mastanun admaod. If you have rejected us, okay, at least stop hurting us because it's been enough anger. It's actually acceptance of okay, I get it now. He really doesn't like us very much. Right. Right. Exactly. Well put. So if we want to summarize, somebody listening to Eicha 2,600 years ago, because you mentioned in the introduction to your book, which you graciously sent me, it says there that in some ways after the Shoah, people wouldn't talk about it much, but books like Night by Elie Wiesel or the miniseries Holocaust in 1978 provided a framework which changed people's view of themselves. So for example, you mentioned that after that Holocaust documentary or miniseries, people started calling themselves or calling people who survived the Shoah survivors rather than immigrants or refugees or or victims, Green perhaps. Yeah. Right. 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 And similarly, the way that Elie Wiesel and Knight was able to establish this idea of the importance of memory. We can't sweep it under the rug anymore. Bearing provided, witness. Bearing witness, yeah. A bearing witness. So it provided some sort of framework for them to move forward from that point. So if you could summarize just everything you've been saying now, after somebody has gone through, as you say, watching the performers perform Eicha and showing them what they should be thinking, at this point... Is the main point we have sinned? Is the main point that God has rejected us? What's the big takeaway for that person living on the shores of Babylon 2,600 years ago? 
Okay, the takeaway is that our conception of who God is and what and what are the dynamics of our relationship, we had it all wrong. We viewed him solely as a great grandfather in the sky, a Santa Claus. And that the reality is that no, that, 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 that it is our responsibility that is brought upon us this, this destruction, that Hashem can be angry with us, but at the same time, he is still there to hear us if we are ready to accept our responsibility. And I think that was the big message that Yumiya wanted to get across. Okay. That's an important message. But my final question would be, what's the message for people sitting now listening to this podcast today in 2023? I don't think most people would be happy to hear that the answer is, your theology of God loves Israel is all wrong. That doesn't sound like a theology that most people would accept nowadays. So what should I be thinking on Tisha B'Av night, listening to Eicha, and when I'm thinking about the message of Eicha, I can understand the message for them, but that was a long time ago, and it was a very different world. We don't experience Chorban in the same way that people on the shores of Babylon did. What should I be thinking about when I read Eicha? What's the message for me? Yeah, so I, I, I think that we need a correctness to our theology, Scott. You know, it's remarkable. We have lots of literature in the realm of Machshevet Israel, Jewish thought, about the rebirth of the Jewish people, the Renaissance in the land of Israel, the divine elements of Zionism, all of which are true, all of which are wonderful. Listen, we live in, in incredibly blessed times. I mean, and all of us, certainly those of us that are living in Israel, but also those of us outside of Israel who have an affinity for what's going on here can't help but understand that we are, we are living in prophetic times. And that's, that's abundantly clear, and there's incredible blessing in that. And so it's very easy for us to say, listen, Kodesh Baruch is smiling at us. And certainly in, there are many indications that he is. The question is, is, you know, are we on borrowed time? It is perhaps, as it says in, in, uh, in Ha'azinu, that there comes a point sometimes when Am Yisrael is so down and that the Kodesh Baruch has no choice but to give them a boost. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's always thrilled with us. And I think that it's really, really important for us to, to, to recognize on Tisha B'av, uh, when we are, you know, looking at the, 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 the half of the cup that's empty. All year long, we look at the half, look at this, we're building and we're returning and, 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 and all that stuff to notice the half of the cup that's empty. But you know, there's not a base of Mikdash. What does that mean when there's not a base of Mikdash? That means half the cup is empty. But we don't like to think about the, the half of the cup that's empty. We don't like to think about Wow, Kodesh Baruch was not actually totally thrilled with us. Uh, this is a blessed time, but maybe, maybe there's a big bill to be paid, uh, and that's that's a daunting thought. I, I I like to say that really in our time, Scott, every single day is 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 Yom Atzmaut, and every single day is Tisha B'Av. Those need to be held together. Yes, we are in a time of blessing, but we are not at full redemption, and Kodesh Baruch was waiting for us to, to do our part. So maybe we've done it partially. But the, the, you know the best way to see that we're not there is by what's going on in Harabite. If we were really where we're supposed to be, then we wouldn't have the problems that we have. It's not a question of can you go up or not go up. We cannot offer carbon. We cannot rebuild the base of right now. Kodesh Baruch was sending us a message, guys. You're not there yet. And I think that you know it's really incumbent upon us to think about our collective faults on on, on Tishabah. And so the words of Yirmiyahu can't be more 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 appropriate in Parakate. Don't just speak about, oh, Hashem loves us and he loves us. We're, we're his avadecha, his servants and his chassidim and his turtle dove. There's some of that. But you know, there's also looking at the, the half of the cup that's empty means a much more sober view as well. 
And I think especially in these troubled times, it is not difficult to find many things that need, need repair. I think that these are very sobering, but vitally important things for us to be thinking about on Tisha B'Av for sure, and probably year-round as well. Wow, that's such an important message. I often think about Yeshua and grew fat and kicked, and too often we have that experience. Things are so great. Seeing the glass not only is half full, but is completely full, forgetting that there's so much more that needs to be done, both nationally and also personally as individuals. We are not always the people we should be, and that's a very important message. One final question, Rabbi Berman. Is the book on Eicha available now, or is it coming out soon? What's the story with that? Right. Okay. So uh, just like Eicha has multiple voices within it, I have multiple answers for you, Scott. It is, it is already available online. For those that have a subscription to Cambridge Core Books, the book is published by uh, Cambridge University Press as part of an academic series they have on the Tanakh called the New Cambridge Bible Commentary Series. So if you are affiliated, let's say, with an academic institution, there's a likelihood that you would have already access to the entire book in electronic fashion. Uh, the book is also now available for sale uh, on Cambridge University Press website, on Amazon. I don't think that it stores here in Israel, you know, it's it, because it's Cambridge University Press, which maybe impresses some people, but it doesn't impress Judaica bookstores. So I don't think that you can find it there. He probably has to order it online. And um, it's, uh, it, it's reasonably, the paperback is reasonably priced. What's so the title of the book? Uh, the title of the book is, sorry, this is, uh, you know, it's academic and it's part of a series. It's called The Book of Lamentations. Lamentations, despite what you said at the beginning, that's a misleading title. Listen, you know, yeah, yeah. Okay. Joshua A. Berman. Okay, well, Rabbi Berman, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. As I said at the beginning of our conversation, I always leave with so many more ideas, and this was no exception, so I thank you for joining me today. Okay, very good. And Scott, may, may uh, anyone that, that purchases the book, may it be irrelevant next year that we should be in the time of Pe'ula. And uh, thank you for having me on, and thank you to the listeners for, uh, for tuning in. Thank you. I'm a pretty great multitasker. I can wash dishes and do laundry. I can roller skate while walking my dog. I can even order lunch while doing my homework. But I can't use my phone while driving. A distracted driver is one of the leading causes of death in the United States. So when it comes to driving, please, don't be a multitasker. Don't drive distracted. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, 
or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.